Hello, and welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. I'm your host, Zach Wheeler, and I'm joined by my co-host, Julia Ahn. Antarctica, with its freezing temperatures, windblown surfaces, and shockingly low amount of precipitation, is the Earth's most inhospitable continent. Surrounded on all sides by the Southern Ocean, it took until 1911 for explorers to reach the South Pole. Yet, the continent is not beyond the reach of politics. In this special episode of our two-part series on Greek power competition in the Poles, we discuss the geopolitics of Antarctica. What is the Antarctic Treaty? What are the treaty's limitations? How has climate change and COVID-19 affected the region? And how are great powers pushing the envelope of what should and shouldn't be done in the region? To help us answer these questions, today on the podcast, we're joined by Dr. Klaus Dodds. Klaus Dodds is a professor of geopolitics at Royal Holloway, University of London, and a fellow of the Academy of Social Sciences. He is the author and editor of several books, including The Scramble for the Poles and Pink Ice, Britain and the South Atlantic Empire. He has served as a specialist advisor to the UK Parliament on polar matters, worked with the Parliamentary Office on Science and Technology, on polar science diplomacy, and visited the Antarctic on four separate occasions. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Dr. Dodds, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. So to get us started, could you give us a quick overview of Antarctica? What has historically been its geopolitical importance? Um, well, I think the first thing to say is, is that and Antarctica is a landmass surrounded by a very large ocean called the Southern Ocean. Uh, the the landmass in question is uh, considerably larger than the continental United States. And really, until quite recently, um, until the 1940s, even the 1950s, there was still a great deal of uncertainty about how large the continent was, how thick the ice sheet that covers it was, uh, even the uh, specificities of, of the coastline and ice shelf edge was, uh, you know, mired in uncertainty and mystery. So when we talk about the geopolitics of the Antarctic, we're, we're talking about something that's been uh, an evolving object of interest. Um, and essentially, the, the drivers of geopolitical uh, concern have really been uh, resources, uh, whaling and sealing, uh, which started really from the 18th, 19th century onwards were tremendously important and generated considerable sums of money uh, for those involved in the trade. Uh, subsequently, we had uh, the first territorial claims being made on the Antarctic. And so by the 1940s, there were seven so-called claimant states. And in the middle of the Cold War, although it would appear to be very, very remote, and quite exceptional, there, there was nonetheless concern that the Antarctic might become a bit like the Arctic, might become a sort of new frontier of superpower competition. And in the mix throughout, there was always science, which on the one hand was, was very, very adept at promoting cooperation and goodwill. But at the, on the other hand, it was also a mechanism for states to pursue their geopolitical and strategic objectives. So science was always caught up 
in a in a, a medley of competing pressures. So, Professor Dodds, you mentioned that historically countries have started laying claims to Antarctica. Could you give us a brief history of the scramble for Antarctica? So the first claim uh, that was uh, made uh, in the Antarctic context was by the United Kingdom in 1908. It was, it was via what was called a, a letters patent. And one of the most important uh, things to bear in mind is that by the point at which the United Kingdom made the first territorial claim uh, to uh, an area of land, sea and ice called the Falkland Island Dependencies, the United Kingdom, of course, had been an imperial power for several centuries prior to that point. Uh, But what was interesting about the timing of all of this was that it really caught a particular moment where, on the one hand, the United Kingdom was concerned about uh, rising territorial and imperial competition in other parts of the world, but at the same time also worried that with the growing uh, economic interest in the Antarctic, particularly through whaling, that if the United Kingdom did not make a claim, then there was a danger that another country might get there first. So the Falkland Islands Dependencies effectively covers the Antarctic Peninsula. It's that part of the Antarctic that uh, stretches towards the bottom of South America. It's the most accessible part of the Antarctic, and it was the part of the Antarctic where uh, you had some of the richest whaling and also sealing grounds. So it was a real sort of resource commodity hotspot. Thereafter, the claim was altered in 1917 because it was found to be geographically uh, rather over-ambitious and accidentally included Tierra de Fuego in its original confines. Uh, But that was adjusted and taken further south, so it didn't accidentally claim uh, two South American countries' territories. And thereafter, what we see in the 1920s and 1930s is six other countries joining the Antarctic Claimant Club. Uh, So those were uh, France, New Zealand, Australia, Norway, and then a little bit later, uh, Argentina and Chile in the 1940s. So by the time you get to 1945, you have seven claimants, two of whom are South American countries, uh, three of whom are British and or Commonwealth powers. And then you have Norway and France. Uh, Norway was an uh, interesting case study of a country that was invited by Britain to make a territorial claim to the Antarctic, uh, because earlier Britain had asked South Africa to do something similar, but they had declined. And then, just to add further spice to the mix, we have uh, quite uniquely a so-called unclaimed sector, which is the uh, Pacific Ocean sector. It's the remotest part of the Antarctic. It was never claimed by any one state. And we also have the intriguing proposition of both the United States and the former Soviet Union expressing an interest and indeed a right 
to make a future claim to the Antarctic continent. So uh, one way of looking at it is that we have seven claimant states. We have two semi-claimant states. Uh, we now assume Soviet Union is Russia, of course. And we also have a very odd situation where the claims of the United Kingdom, Argentina, and Chile substantially overlap with one another. So that's been uh, a huge uh, source of anxiety uh, for the United Kingdom, having two counterclaimants. And part of the story of the 20th century is how Britain has had to manage that security predicament. Dr. Dodds, you have brought us up to speed with the different claimants of the Antarctic and the context for the rush to Antarctica in the 1900s. So that brings us up to 1959 and the Antarctic Treaty. Could you talk to us a little bit about why the Antarctic Treaty was needed and what the impetus for the treaty in 1959 was? So the Antarctic Treaty of 1959 was the result of six weeks of intense negotiations uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, which started in early October and ended in December. And the, the genesis of the treaty is not straightforward. The conventional story is this. The treaty uh, conference of 1959 came about because of American leadership in the aftermath of what was called the International Geophysical Year, that ran between 1957 and 1958. The IGY had an Antarctic dimension. 12 countries, including all those claimant states and semi-claimants I mentioned, plus five others, uh, including Japan and South Africa, uh, were working together on the Antarctic uh, under the guise of advancing polar science. And for much of the time, they were doing exactly that. They were carrying out an awful lot of science uh, above and below uh, the ice uh, of Antarctica and the waterline of the Southern Ocean. So the conventional story suggests that the treaty came about because of the good cooperative spirit engendered by the International Geophysical Year, and thanks to American leadership, the 12 parties were able to get together and create a unique treaty that uh, has undoubtedly transformed the world by showing that it was possible, for example, to declare an entire continent to be free of military and nuclear activity. That's a huge achievement in the middle of the Cold War. There's another story, however, that complicates that conventional story. And the Antarctic Treaty is a remarkable achievement, but it also comes about because in some cases, parties were desperate for the Antarctic Treaty, the United Kingdom being one of them. Uh, we were desperate because we were short of money and did not want to continue an expensive scramble for the Antarctic. But it was also a treaty that was uh, considered to be uh, really rather unhelpful to Argentina and Chile and Australia as three other claimant states. So one of the things that the Antarctic Treaty does is to say that in order to generate cooperation and goodwill, 
all the claimant states have to agree that their claims are effectively suspended for the duration of the treaty. And what this did, of course, was to take the spirit of the IGY and to turn it into a strategic advantage for Russia and the United States, or the Soviet Union, of course, in those days. It meant, in other words, that the Soviet Union and the United States could locate any scientific station they wanted uh, all over the Antarctic without asking anybody's prior permission. And it also meant that the claimant states, uh, if they wanted the Soviet Union and the United States to remain within the treaty uh, structure, had to accept that their claims were not necessarily going to be downgraded, but they were going to be put, put in their place. The treaty also was a huge uh, success, but it was a real struggle to agree this, uh, when it came to making the continent nuclear-free. It's worth bearing in mind that both the United States and the Soviet Union had speculated about the value of the Antarctic as a nuclear testing zone. So it wasn't inevitable, in other words, that the Antarctic Treaty would uh, secure uh, forever the idea of Antarctica as, as a demilitarized, denuclearized space. And the, the other thing I think just worth noting is that sometimes you, uh, you know, you might hear uh, of this extraordinary being, of this extraordinary treaty being negotiated in six weeks. Well, the, the thing to bear in mind is that prior to the parties meeting in October 1959, there had been 18 months of really, really intense uh, private diplomatic negotiation and argument and counter-argument. So by the time they got there, the parties actually were quite exhausted uh, because there'd been so much uh, prior negotiation. And then finally, it's really worth noting about the timing of the treaty. If, if I tell you that, of course, there were 12 parties uh, to the treaty, to the, uh, the so-called original signatories, then it obviously begs the question, who wasn't there? And of course, two parties that weren't there were India and China. And it would be quite unthinkable now that we would negotiate an Antarctic treaty in 2020 without those two countries playing a major role in any negotiations. So, Dr. Dodds, it's my understanding that after the Antarctic Treaty was signed, there were a series of agreements in, in later decades that added to the treaty to create the Antarctic Treaty system. I was wondering if you could just briefly touch upon pieces of the Antarctic Treaty system that are very substantial that were not initially agreed upon in 1959. So the Antarctic Treaty is, is a remarkable treaty. It's a short treaty. Um, you can read it uh, quickly in about 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, one of the things that you will notice about the treaty is that it doesn't address uh, resource exploitation. So it doesn't talk about whales, seals, minerals. It doesn't talk about environmental conservation. And it doesn't talk about other activities such as fishing. So it's a limited treaty. And what the treaty works with is the idea of cooperation and goodwill. 
it works with the idea that science is a powerful enabler of diplomacy and politics. And it really focuses on this idea that sovereignty claims are suspended and that in order to engender a spirit of goodwill and cooperation, it's vital that the Antarctic is demilitarized and denuclearized. What, of course, became apparent after the treaty entered into force in June 1961 was that other things needed to be confronted or dealt with uh, to varying degrees. So, for example, you had an obvious issue, which was what about countries that wanted to join the Antarctic Treaty System, as it, as it was later called? Well, the treaty said you can, of course, be a signatory to the treaty. But if you want to be a vote, uh, a voting uh, party, then you will have to demonstrate substantial scientific interest in the Antarctic. So that was a kind of a bar to full membership. And it was never clear, because it's not defined in the treaty itself, how you would demonstrate or exhibit substantial scientific interest. So that was, that was a factor uh, that had to be negotiated after 1961. How many parties did you want to join the club? Uh, what kind of qualifications were going to be established? Well, that becomes clearer in the 1960s and 1970s. It usually means you have to establish a research station in the Antarctic and carry out substantial scientific research. So that, that was one area of change. And in the 1980s, it changed markedly because countries like India, China and Brazil became members of the Antarctic Treaty System. The second area was uh, resources. Now, resources were always going to be very, very sensitive because resources, of course, go to the heart of territorial sovereignty. So, you know, if you're going to deal with something like mineral resources, then you really are touching upon the ownership of the surface and subsurface of the Antarctic. So the treaty, sensibly, in my opinion, avoids that issue for now. But fishing couldn't wait. In the 1960s and 70s, it was quite clear that the Southern Ocean was becoming a major fisheries ground. And what we see in the late 70s is the negotiation of a fisheries uh, agreement. It's called CAMLA. Uh, and it's really quite avant-garde in the sense that it introduces a ecosystem-based approach to the management of the Southern Ocean. It establishes what are called total allowable catches. It's grounded in fisheries science. And it tries to take a very ecologically sensitive view of what's sensible to harvest in terms of fish and krill. The third area uh, that starts to emerge actually quite early on in the 1960s onwards is, is really around conservation. So initially it's about the conservation of flora and fauna, but later in the late 80s, early 90s, it becomes uh, encapsulated by the idea of environmental protection. So you've got these sort of three areas of development. You've got membership and contact with the wider world. You've got resource management. And then you've also got this final strand, which is 
environmental protection, uh, conservation. And the Antarctic Treaty System has tried to work with those three strands uh, ever since its ratification. Dr. Dodds, something I've been thinking about a lot is after learning about the Antarctic Treaty, it strikes me that there really, to my understanding, there isn't really an enforcement mechanism to the treaty if it's not followed. So correct me if I'm wrong, but what happens if a country, say Russia, China, the United States, et cetera, just starts to do resource extraction that's banned or does nuclear weapons testing? Like, What would be the consequences of breaking the Antarctic Treaty? So the Antarctic Treaty does have towards the end um, some articles that deal with disputes and conflict resolution. One of the underlying, indeed, you might say the, the principal uh, elements of the treaty is the idea of consensus. So you might ask at this point, well, how, how do all those parties go about making agreements about resources, about environmental protection, about membership? Well, the answer is consensus. So ever since the treaty was established, the principle has been that decisions have to be arrived at consensus. Now, in the 1950s, consensus didn't have quite the same connotation it probably has now, where we tend to be a little bit sniffy about consensus. We always think consensus means the lowest common denominator, and it means weak agreement, because that's the best we can do. In the 1950s, consensus was seen rather differently, and I think seen as a sort of apex of diplomatic achievement. That's I think, has changed um, over the years. And what, what really we've discovered is several things. First of all, um, in order to secure consensus, sometimes uh, you have to hold your nose and uh, pretend that you can live with certain decisions that you find fairly objectionable, or you have to, in a sense, uh, agree not to cause a diplomatic outrage over behaviours done by third parties that you find really quite disturbing. So to give you an example, in order to maintain consensus over fishing or living resource management, as it's sometimes termed, in the Southern Ocean, it has meant that parties who have engaged in illegal fishing or who are suspected of engaging in illegal fishing have not been called out publicly in Antarctic Treaty meetings. So one of the benefits of consensus is that it can end up generating quite robust agreements. The downside of consensus is that it's often very hard to impose implementation. And what we find with fisheries in particular is that the original convention that was negotiated in the late 70s, early 80s, has this sort of ambivalence to it. It is on one hand calls for conservation, but it also talks about the rational use of resources. And I don't think it will surprise listeners uh, to learn that countries like China tend to be rather keen on the idea of rational use as opposed to conservation. And that's an area I think we're going to see more tension. Now, beyond that, uh, if things were to go terribly badly, parties, of course, 
can uh, signal their intention to withdraw. Parties are in dispute, of course, could say, we will take our dispute to the International Court of Justice. Um, Parties uh, could say that uh, we are not going to abide by some of the measures or agreements of the Antarctic Treaty System and then dare others to act. One thing is clear. If China, Russia, the United States withdrew from the Antarctic Treaty System, we would, I think, conclude fairly quickly that the system had been weakened. So to fast forward a little bit to today, especially with the discussion about um, about competing countries, how is great power competition currently playing out in Antarctica? How are countries exerting influence over parts of the continent and who are the major players today? So I think one of the huge changes from the 1950s uh, to the present day is, uh, to put it succinctly, the globalization of Antarctica. Um, Antarctica was, I think, in the 1950s, for many, many people, as remote as the moon. Uh, It poorly understood, uh, poorly televised, mediated, uh, barely explored, uh, and where we had huge gaps of understanding about the continent and the surrounding ocean. Over the last 50 or 60 years, we've seen an explosion of knowledge generation, but also uh, what I would think of as entanglement. So we have more and more legal, political, cultural, economic relationships and frameworks making themselves felt on the Antarctic. And also, of course, we've got climate change that has absolutely radically transformed our idea of Antarctica. In the past, we would have seen ice as terrifying. Now, arguably, we are terrifying the ice. Uh, We have a continent that, if we continue to go in the direction we are going, uh, will will melt and will simply return to water uh, with all the implications that it carries for sea level change. So we've had this huge, huge cultural, political, economic shift in how we think of Antarctica. And that means when we think about who are the the great powers in Antarctica, well, yes, of course, we return to Russia and the United States. Um, but But we'd be absolutely remiss if we didn't talk about India, China, Korea, uh, as well as the what I would call the more traditional Antarctic powers, like the United Kingdom, Argentina, Australia. It's far more diverse. We now have over 50 countries that are signatories of the Antarctic Treaty. It's a lot more complicated than it was in 1959, when 12 countries were effectively determining the fate of Antarctica. Antarctica is a lot more connected. We see, for example, environmental groups, uh, whether it's Greenpeace, whether it's Pew, uh, you know, you you name it. There'll be all kinds of environmental groups, citizen groups. Uh, The Antarctic is a topic of conversation on social media, utterly unthinkable in the 1950s. So it's a kind of mainstreaming of the Antarctic, but also a huge shift, even from the 1980s. China, for example, sees itself as a polar power, 
that's a that's a big big change from even 20 years ago 30 years ago so speaking of changes since 1959 there's been now plenty of speculation regarding possible and significant resources such as of oil or gas has this influenced the importance of antarctica in recent years i th- i think that's a really important uh question to think about because whilst the environmental protocol uh, which was negotiated in the late 1980s uh, entered into force into 1998 says clearly all forms of mineral exploration and exploitation are banned there's always been in the Antarctic uh, political and sort of geopolitical realm speculation about the resource potential of Antarctica. I mean, we know, of course, that there are mineral resources and traces of minerals throughout the Antarctic. Captain Scott's expedition, for example, uh, discovered coal. Um, The US Geological Survey uh, published an evaluation of Antarctica in 1974, which spoke of undiscovered mineral potential. So this kind of speculative quality of the Antarctic uh, has never quite gone away. And although many people would think of mining as unthinkable in the Antarctic, there's no doubt about it that countries such as Russia and China have spoken fairly recently about the resource potential of Antarctica. And they don't just mean fish and krill and whales. Um, It's also worth saying that fishing and indeed whaling that falls under the auspices of the International Whaling Commission has, of course, been a subject of controversy and indeed conflict. Uh, Australia, for example, took uh, legal action against Japan for so-called scientific whaling in the Southern Ocean. Uh, Fishing has proved hugely contentious in the Southern Ocean. We saw really very painful negotiations that led to a marine protected area for the Ross Sea. On the one hand, that was an absolute triumph for uh, environmental diplomacy. But on the other hand, it also revealed some very real schisms within the Antarctic Treaty parties. China in particular has a, a really rather robust view about the rational use or exploitation of fish in the Southern Ocean. In short, it wants to do more fishing. So we're going to see, I think, uh, tension uh, in the coming years over how we balance resource usage against conservation and protection. And that's not going to be straightforward. And with this tension that um, you've talked about, will this increased presence of countries like China and Russia, do you see that increasing the likelihood of militarization or conflict between the great powers? Well, let me let me bring us right up to up to date and talk about the pandemic just for a moment. As everybody knows, uh, from February March onwards uh, of this year, uh, we had uh, a, a pandemic being declared by the World Health Organization with really very very severe and ongoing implications for human mobility. In short, borders were shut, airports were compromised. And the normal order of things in terms of uh, human travel and interaction has clearly been curtailed. 
Now, that had profound implications for Antarctica. If ever there was a place that depends on fairly modest communication transport networks, Antarctica would be surely uh, a prime example. So what happened, of course, was that parties had scientists trapped on the ice. We had tourist ships, and it's worth bearing in mind that 55,000 people visited the Antarctic last year, many of them Chinese, by the way. Um, Suddenly, of course, all these parties were scrambling to get their personnel off the ice and at the same time make arrangements to ensure that research infrastructure and stations uh, were being looked after uh, in the midst of this pandemic. Now, one really important question that we're going to have to consider is this, is how do we cope potentially in a post-pandemic era where the human presence on Antarctica might be diminished because of public health worries, but other parties then seek to take advantage of fewer people around to do things that we might not approve of. China, Russia, even the United States may have very different levels of tolerance for risk compared to the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and others. So one area that we might see future tension is over public health, And the very thing that we have championed in the Antarctic Treaty, international scientific cooperation, goodwill, much of which has often involved people-to-people contact, might be severely compromised. And one of the notable things this year is that the Antarctic Treaty annual meeting that was supposed to be held in Finland had to be cancelled because of COVID-19. So... When you have an organization that is absolutely grounded in the principle of consensus, the way you tend to secure consensus is through, of course, people-to-people interaction. It's that very, very human quality that makes the Antarctic Treaty System work. Well, all of that, of course, has been suspended. It's been upended. So my concern is that Zoom diplomacy might not do the same kind of job as face-to-face consensual meetings. So you talked a lot previously about the importance of scientific research in Antarctica. Can you briefly describe what these research activities are and also how scientific research can be a vector for geopolitical competition? Antarctic science is incredibly varied. Um, It's almost inevitably multinational, multi-party, it's expensive, and it varies in size, scope, and ambition. Um, Some of the most notable work has been collaborative. Uh, So, for example, the UK and the US uh, work together on a, for, for my mind, a very exciting pro- uh, project around what's called the Thwaites Glacier uh, in one of the most remotest parts of the Antarctic. And a lot of that work is about uh, change that's affecting glacial systems and the implications uh, for Antarctica's uh, ice mass. So you've got a huge effort going on at the moment which is really about how is Antarctica responding to climate change and what are the implications, uh, not just for sea level, but but actually the wider sort of planetary climate. Um, You've also got uh, lots of uh, 
hugely interesting work on Antarctica's biogeography. So in terms of how plants, animals uh, are evolving, changing, uh, adapting, of course, to rapid change. One thing we're noticing at the moment is the so-called greening of Antarctica. So this is where the Antarctic Peninsula is becoming milder, and that's then facilitating invasive species to make the peninsula home. And they're able to do so because the peninsula is warmer and wetter than it has been in the recent past. Um, We've also got research that looks to Antarctica as a place to study the, the skies. So you've got lots of interesting research that uses Antarctica as a base for astronomy. Uh, and so in that sense, you know, part of the attraction is it's a part of the world that is comparatively free of light pollution. So it's very, very varied. Now, as a vector of geopolitics, um, there are two qualities to this. The first is, as I've just hinted at, science can be a wonderful factor uh, for cementing relationships. It can have a sort of diplomatic force that uh, a lot of parties are drawn to. You know, it clearly, for example, is of some importance that the United Kingdom collaborates with the United States. The United States is the largest polar operator, and it is part and parcel of what we in the United Kingdom like to think of as a special relationship with the US. So that's the one element um, that a lot of countries are very drawn to. There, of course, is another element that is more disturbing. And that's when countries build bases, establish runways, do things in the Antarctic that leads you to worry about their future intentions. So, uh, for example, it's very commonplace to read in the Australian media concern about China's growing polar presence and to worry that Australia, as the largest claimant state, uh, the Australian claim encompasses some 42% of the continent, it's absolutely massive, uh, that this Chinese investment and activity might end up uh, undermining that Australian claim uh, if the treaty was ever to collapse in the future. So the problem with science is it's double-edged. It can be a force... Uh, for good, but it can also be a force for anxiety, you know, and and geopolitical competition. Uh, so you've always got to bear that in mind when you think about polar science. It's never neutral. It's never disinterested. It's always in being enrolled in different kinds of projects. Professor Dodds, in recent years, we've also seen a increase interest in geopolitical competition and militarization um, in different nations in the Arctic, um, in, in the North. So we were wondering, how is competition in the Arctic different from competition in the Antarctic? And then what do you think, if you could speculate, like between the Arctic and the Antarctic, what is more geostrategically important in the coming decades? So in, in the Arctic... Uh, we have a very different political geography at play. We have eight so-called Arctic states, um, and we have a, a NATO uh, relationship with many of them. And, of course, 
in, in contradistinction, we have Russia, which is the largest Arctic state. Uh, 50% of the Arctic, in some form or other, is under Russian control uh, or sovereignty. And the differences, of course, are very marked in the sense that the Arctic Ocean is a semi-enclosed ocean, whereas the Southern Ocean surrounds the Antarctic continent. The Arctic does not have the equivalent of an Antarctic Treaty. As the Cold War reminded us, it was a highly militarised space. And of course, the other thing about the Arctic was, was that it was closely connected to other areas of strategic importance, uh, most notably the North Atlantic. And that's one of the reasons why uh, NATO always had an interest uh, in the Arctic as a particular theatre. In the Antarctic, that sort of strategic competition takes on a different hue because the treaty, of course, it demilitarizes and denuclearizes. So what I've tried to suggest is, is that other things take on a sort of extraordinary importance that they wouldn't necessarily take on if we were talking about another part of the world. So, for example, if you talk about polar infrastructure, if you talk about polar science, and you speak of investment in icebreakers, research stations, runways, um, capacity to project science, or uh, an upgrading of communication systems. These take on a, a sort of heightened importance in the Antarctic, because a lot of the Antarctic, uh, where the politics plays out, is over both mobility Uh, So projection, but also presence. You know, where can I fix a presence on this very, very large, slippery continent? And so when you think about how Australia makes sense of China, it makes sense of China through things like icebreaker movement, research station construction, investment in scientific programs. But then, of course... When Australia thinks of China in the Antarctic context, it also thinks of its relationship with China elsewhere. And that's been a big, big difference, I think, in contemporary Antarctica. We, we in the past, often tended to think of Antarctica as, as this extraordinary place and splendid isolation. We don't do that anymore. So, for example, China invests and supports the Chilean Antarctic program. Well, that's, you know, that would have been unthinkable 30 or 40 years ago when China talks about the Belt and Road Initiative and talks about a polar silk road in the Arctic. Well, what we can see in the Antarctic is China's financial, geoeconomic, geopolitical relationships with other parties beginning to complicate this Antarctic space. So those relationships Mm -hmm. Uh, those financial investments, they make themselves felt in the Antarctic. Just as in the, uh, you know, if you go back and look at the work of the International Whaling Commission, one of the things that Japan did was was to build financial and economic relationships with fellow member states of the International Whaling Commission in the hope, of course, that they would be more sympathetic to Japan's desire to resume scientific whaling in places like the Southern Ocean. So you're beginning to see these kinds of subtle and not so subtle 
political manoeuvres in the Antarctic, it makes securing consensus in a consensus-based organisation all the more harder. Well, Professor Dodds, I think that's a perfect place to wrap out our podcast today. We really want to thank you for joining us. It's been an enlightening conversation. I, I know I've learned a lot. Um, so thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you. It's really been my pleasure. Really appreciate the invitation. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins P-O-F-A on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, give us a subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time 